Hello and welcome to another episode of the Parson Brown Podcast. This week we have Dr. Tom Orr joining us to talk about open relational theology. We also have a full panel from HCN, including Billy Mykrantz, Reverend Dwayne Harris, and Reverend Randy Kinder. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome to uh, another uh, Theology Roundtable. Uh, from HCN, and tonight we have a very special guest um, in a series that I hope uh, we'll be able to engage with actual people that I would say are doing theology. Uh, we've got several authors that uh, we've been reaching out to, and uh, tonight we get um, someone who's actually coined terms and coined ideas and one of the leaders in um, what is called open relational theology, and that's uh, Dr. Tom Ord. Um, we're going to welcome him here. Uh, I will let everybody know you can ask questions on Facebook. Uh, we'll be watching the stream if you want to chat or send anything, or if you have uh, my cell number, you can text me as well. If you have any questions, uh, be great to be able to have some interaction with everybody and be able to get some uh, questions in if you have them. So uh, at the outset here, though, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Ord or as Tom, as he's asked us to call him, go ahead and introduce himself. And then I'll have a few questions for him. And then uh, Billy, Randy, and Dwayne will probably have a lot of questions for him as we go. And then, as I said, if you if you have questions, please reach out um, on Facebook or text. So, uh, Tom, go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Great. Thanks so much for the invitation for this conversation and, and for uh, allowing me to explore big ideas with you. Uh, my full name is Thomas J. Ord, but as you said, just call me Tom. I'm a theologian. I'm a philosopher. I engage in a lot of multidisciplinary studies, which basically means that I follow rabbit trails in whatever direction, in the sciences, the humanities, the arts, because I think God is big. <laughs> Theology ought to be big and engage all of the disciplines in all aspects of life. I uh, direct a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary, but prior to that, for 18 years, I taught theology and philosophy at uh, Northwest Nazarene University and Eastern Nazarene College. Um, I've been a part of the Church of Nazarene since I was younger. I'm an ordained elder. Um, I don't know. Is that pretty good in terms of starting things off, Brandon? I, right. I think that's great. That lets us know who you are and a little bit about uh, what you do and that you've been teaching this uh, teaching people theology and other ideas for a very long time and are part of a church as well. So uh, that's awesome. So um, we are going to be talking a bit about a book that came out recently uh, by, by Tom called Open Relational Theology. And um, it's a very accessible book. It's actually an introduction. And I would just encourage anybody that has questions, especially about this, to pick the book up, borrow the book from somebody However you can get it, read it. It is very accessible. And I can tell you, it, um, it's got some great ideas in it. And um, you'll, you'll be wanting more uh, once you read it. Because like I said, it's just an introduction. It just kind of gives you an idea of what it is, lays out some of the ideas behind it, and um, what open relational theology is. But um, there are a couple of ideas at the very beginning of the book, and we talked about one of these in our last stream when we had Gabriel Gordon on uh, talking about his book, God Speaks. And uh, these are the ideas of what's called essential kenosis, big word, big phrase, but Tom can explain exactly what that means. But then in this book, he brings up another word that flows out of essential kenosis in terms of the nature of God and how God works, and that is called omnipotence and a fancy word using some latin i'll let tom tell us how he coined that term um it's always great to have an author on who's coined a term that people are starting to use and i have heard it out in the wild so it's not just in the book it's not just tom saying it other people have picked up the, the word and we're starting to uh engage with that so tom if you could kind of explain you know, give us an introduction to essential kenosis and then how that informed omnipotence, especially. Yeah, for quite some time, Christians and folks of other religious traditions, but Christians in particular, have wrestled with the question of God's love and God's power. And it seemed pretty clear to most people that we have something like free will or freedom, that uh, everything in the world doesn't, you know, 
bounce along in a strictly determined kind of way. There's some agency, there's freedom, there's indeterminacy. And uh, people began to say, well, maybe we should think about a God who's not controlling everything. Um, and the idea of, uh, from Philippians chapter uh, two, I believe it is, in which uh, the author is talking about God acting and Jesus as a canonic act, that is the self-giving and others empowering action that we see revealed in Jesus, not only his life, but his death and resurrection. And so this view of kind of emerged, especially in the academy, that's been, that's been called canonic theology. That is, Jesus tells us something about who God is, and God is a God who self-gives, others empowers, self-empties. There's a lot of words that get used in giving to creation, and therefore God's not in control. Well, those who have adopted this way of thinking, uh, who are called canonic theologians, have often said that God's giving of freedom and agency and otherness to creation is something that God voluntarily does. That is, God could keep all the power and not give anything away, but God, for whatever reason, out of love, out of worship or whatever, is giving freedom, at least most of the time. And uh, this is sometimes called a voluntary self-limitation from God. I think there's a lot of value in thinking that God is a God of self-giving, others-empowering love. But I have problems with thinking that God could sometimes control, but usually doesn't. And here, let me illustrate it by making up a story, all right? <laughs> a fictional story. I'm coming to you from Idaho tonight, and uh, I happen to live, uh, there's a little stream behind my house. And when my daughters were younger, they would often go out in the summertime and play in, this, in the stream. Imagine some summer, I'm in my backyard working, and my girls are in the stream. And imagine that my oldest daughter is so angry with my youngest daughter that she takes my youngest daughter's head, puts it under the water, and tries to drown her. Now, here I am as the dad, seeing this seeing that my younger daughter could very well die because my older daughter is trying to kill her. She's so mad at her. I could intervene, get out in the stream and rescue my daughter. But what if I just said, you know, I'm going to allow this. I'm not going to intervene. I'm not going to step in and rescue my daughter. And I'm not going to interrupt my oldest daughter's free will. I'll just permit this death. Well, if I did that, believe me, nobody in my subdivision would vote me father of the year. Like no one would say, oh, yeah, good job. Just let your kids kill each other. Thumbs up. Way to go, Tom. Because we all know that if we have the ability to prevent genuine evil and don't do it, then we're not loving people. And yet most people have said God has the kind of power to stop evil single-handedly to step in to intervene to use the language i used earlier and yet for some reason sometimes god doesn't do that well i think we need to rethink god's power and so i'm a canonic theologian but i think this kenosis is essential to who god is that is god necessarily gives freedom and agency and spontaneity to creation and this means, and this is where it gets controversial, God simply can't single-handedly prevent the evils that occur in our world, whether they're evils done by free will creatures like you and me, or by animals, or by viruses, or by quantum shifts, or whatever. So that's what essential kenosis is about. Omnipotence is very closely related a lot of people think about God's power, and they use the word omnipotent. And that word has a bunch of different definitions among scholars. But usually it means something like God either controls things or could control if God wanted to. And if that's the case, then all the problems of evil that I just sort of hinted at come roaring back at us. Why wouldn't a loving God who could control prevent the Holocaust, prevent your sister's rape, prevent whatever? 
Um, so some people see the problem with omnipotence and they shift over to a God who does nothing, a God who's impotent, a God who sits on Mars eating popcorn, shuffling his fingers saying, you know, sucks to be you guys down there, but I'm hands off. I don't like either one of those visions. And so I invented this word, omnipotence. A-M-I is the Latin word for love. Potent is a Latin word for power. So it's the idea that God's power is the power of love. And I think God's power is inherently always uncontrolling. So there you go. Essential kenosis and omnipotent. A couple of big words to get us started tonight. All right. And I know, I know Billy has sheets and sheets of questions that he wanted to ask. Um, and I know we'll probably have some others. Um, I, I will, I will go back to something because I think, I think this is important. It's in the book, but you even talk about how at one time physics um, was, was one of those things that kind of proved where people used to say that, you know, that there's no randomness, that, that things can't just happen. But we now understand that, that chaos and uh, things like chaos um, are reality at, at all kinds of levels now. So um, not, not to say that that does anything, but I think that that illustrates the omnipotence part of this, that, um, there are things we know we see because of the way the world works that are, are just going to happen. But, um, and then I'm going to also, I'm going to direct something real quick because I remember I heard you talk to, to Trip Fuller about this. And okay. um, I really liked uh, what you said. And that is that, um, I don't know if I can remember exactly how I want to put this, but that, a lot of your critics will say that in an open and relational theology, God is that God that lives on Mars. Yeah. I think you even used the mouse, you know, the, the oh. mouse on Mars. But yeah, but in open relational theology, God is at work, always at work in the world. That's right. And it is um, because I, I think that's where people can get confused and hung up with, yeah. with the idea of essential kenosis, especially, but that that God is actively working in our world at all times, that, that we also cooperate with that. And I, I think that goes to our Wesleyan understanding of salvation, where Definitely. we must cooperate with the Spirit and with God to be saved. And that's, that's the same kind of idea here, um, you know, and, and it, it gets into how God, God works with us. We work with God uh, through that love of, of different things that happen that that we often are, are the ways that God acts in the world mm. um, through things. Um, and, yeah. and I've, I've put some explicit connections there between, for example, we prayed last year, we were praying at this time last year for a way to um, mitigate uh, the COVID virus. We were all praying heavily, Christians all over the world. And then we now have some, some vaccines and things. And, um, the danger is that we don't recognize that maybe that is the way God is dealing with COVID by working with us in our knowledge and in the things that we learn because of the, the gifts God has given us, because of his love, that that is how this got answered. That the miracle is that these um, things like vaccines uh, came to us so quickly. And it is through that agency and that work of God in the world. And I think I wanted to kind of point that because I, I know that, you know, I've got so, so much I've heard through this. And I think that's where, yeah. I think that's what you're talking about here. And it's very well said. For, yeah. For, for people to understand, because I know, like you said, this can get controversial and people can miss what, what the essential piece of this is. Yeah. And um, I think that's, I agree with everything you said. I, I might just add when you say God's at work in the world, I might uh, just sort of agree and then expand it, not just in the world somewhere over there. Right. God's work at work in my life, right. in my body, in every situation, at every level of existence, from the quantum to the civilization level. But in my view, 
God's working is never controlling, right. never at any level. I think that's that's the key there, and and I do like you, you said, you know, it's not just the world; it's personal. So, I, Randy looks like you think it's important. It's intriguing. I think God <clears throat> as connected in that relational dynamic, in that it's this it's this journey. It's it's something where we're walking with the Creator is important. But when we think about um, when I've had this conversation with other theological friends about God is controlling versus God is directing. Right. So the dynamic of God uh, opening opportunities, guiding the steps of the day, placing moments and opportunities within that. So while that's not controlling the dynamic of God as relational and connected within our lives um, plays such an important role. Do you think that the concept of how God moves in our midst during our days and the rhythms of our life um, plays an important piece of this idea within God is connected as well. Hugely. Yeah, that's very well put. I think God is always directing, but even that word directing could be understood in a controlling kind of way. And I want to make sure we don't go that way. Um, You know, a word that John Wesley used that I liked, it's a word we use today more in love relationships John Wesley said, God woos, W-O-O, woos creation. And that kind of notion is a God who is influencing, but, you know, not heavy handed, not uh, forcing us to do things. And it's that relational dynamic that you mentioned, Randy, that I think is the key. I have a question for you. Um, Based on what you talked about already, um, and I was telling Tom uh, before we went live for everyone out there that I first started reading his work a couple of years ago um, when many of you know that Noah uh, was not getting better. Um, and he had more surgeries and still wasn't getting better. Um, and Tom, we ended up losing him back in December. So mm, he was 22 so sorry. years old. I didn't tell you that, but I started researching pain and suffering. And I came across your book, God Can't. And, um, you know, it was a good read. I've, I've read uh open and relational theology for this um, tonight. So I'm going to try to keep my questions based on that book. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sounds can, good. But I've read you for a couple of years, so I, I really like your work. And it's intriguing. Uh, just just one question to start off with about this omnipotence idea of, um, and the God can't idea. So you, you, you go into your book about the partnership, the the partnership that God has with creation uh, to fight evil. Um, so does that say that you believe that God doesn't, can't do divine healing on his own, that he has to have human partnership in order to do any work at all here? Uh, and would that partnership, you know, sometimes just be something as simple as prayer? I, I'm just, you know, want a little more info on that because I, I do see that we do need to get out and we do have to do our part, but you know, we do see instances in the world where we can say, well, that that is divine healing. That's God working alone. And I know, you know, it sounds like you might not like that idea because if God can do it here, why doesn't he do it here? Yeah. If you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. I think all healing, whether it's dramatic and unexpected or just the kind of healing that comes when you go to your doctor or your physician and something happens, you kind of expected. I think God's the source of all healing. But as you rightly said, I don't think God ever, ever single-handedly heals. In other words, God's never the only cause to bring about a healing. However, I think it's not just humans who can partner with God. I think all creation has the capacity to partner with God, to cooperate or not to cooperate. And that means that we have agents in our own bodies, cells, muscles, organs, etc., that can respond well or poorly to God's activity in our bodies. We obviously live in a world and a civilization in which we sometimes respond well to God and sometimes poorly. I think other animals can do the same. So when I think about God's healing, there are some times in which people get healing and it doesn't seem like they are consciously cooperating with God. But I want to say their bodies are cooperating. That's why sometimes atheists can be healed, even though they don't believe in a God who heals, because their bodies can cooperate, even if their minds don't believe that there is such a God. 
So um, other times healings occur because the simple um, conditions of creation are conducive. So for instance, I don't know if you've been noticing, but I've been drinking a little water tonight because I'm a little thirsty. I don't think this cup cooperates or not with God. I don't think it has free will or even some kind of agency. I think it's what in science we call an aggregate. And an aggregate doesn't have a center of mind or something that can respond to God. But sometimes even the aggregates of creation, be they water molecules or something else, can be aligned for a kind of miracle or healing that occurs uh, not because they decided to cooperate with God, but because things were just set up in the right kind of way. They were conducive. So um, I do believe in miracles. But the beautiful thing about my view of miracles, at least as I see it, is that um, I can also account for why they're not miracles without having to say, well, God picks and chooses some people to heal. Because then I can say, you know, God wanted to heal absolutely everyone but either the conditions of creation were not conducive to that healing, or there wasn't some kind of cooperation amongst those entities that could cooperate. I should quickly say, however, that uh, when I place this emphasis upon cooperation, it sounds to some people like I'm blaming the victims. Like, you know, the reason you're not healed is you didn't have enough faith. You're not cooperating with God. I don't believe that for a second. There may be some instances in which that's true, but the vast majority of times I know people really do want to say yes to God. They want to cooperate to the fullest extent, but their bodies don't cooperate or their bodies aren't aligned with the kind of healing God wants to do. And so while they're saying yes to God mentally, their bodies are not in a place to say yes to God's healing. And that makes a lot more sense to me than saying, well, God, you know, heals Jimmy, but didn't heal Jane. Um, that tape places the onus on creation rather than the creator. By the way, um, I'm going to avoid trying to point people to books tonight, <laughs> but I wrote a follow-up book to God Can't, and it's called Questions and Answers for God Can't. The first chapter is on prayer. The second chapter is on miracles. So if you want to go deeper into this uh, than what I just was able to give just now, Billy, uh, I really suggest uh, that book. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Tom, why do you think that the generational church, particularly the the older generation that has come up within the church struggles so much with that concept. Do you have this idea that God, you know, that it's not a, not necessarily this supernatural God picking and choosing who to heal. Where, why does the struggle become so real, particularly in the, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think there's a variety of reasons why the, the language of God can't, is a challenge for some people. And I'm not sure it's entirely generational, but it might be generational in the sense that if you're an older person and you've heard over and over and over again in your life that God can do anything, you know, if you're like me and you sing in Sunday school, the song that says, my God is so big and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. And, you know, just over time, you're going to hit your red flags are going to go up once you hear someone saying God can't do something, even though I can point out at least a half a dozen places in the Bible that explicitly say things like God can't lie. God can't uh, be tempted. God can't deny himself. God can't grow tired. God can't give up on, and there, there's tons of them in scripture if you start looking for them, but I don't think a lot of people have heard that message and so when I say God can't, that troubles them. Then there are other people who I'm not sure if it's a younger, or older thing, but um, I think just a lot of us would like it to be the case that the world, even though we don't understand it well, is really a safe and secure place and that everything's just going to work out okay, even though, you know, again, our marriages fall apart, our kids do things to hurt themselves and others. We ourselves are amidst our deal with struggles like addictions. There are tortures, there's genocide. 
we still kind of really would like to hope that everything is really right in the divine perspective. And so some people want to say, well, God's in control. I don't understand why this suffering and this evil happens in the world, but I just hang on to the idea that an all-powerful, omnipotent God has a plan and that in some mysterious way, all the crap in my life and in the world is a part of that plan. Some people go that route and some people seem to go even a lifetime like that. But I think the majority of us, we see real problems with that view because if this is true, then that means in some weird way that every child who's tortured is part of God's good plan. And that just makes no sense to me. When we go through difficult divorces or kids commit suicide, we have to say, well, must be God's plan. And I want to say, if that's the plan, it sucks. And the person who put that plan together isn't very competent. I'm putting all my cards on the idea that God's a God of love and wouldn't be in the business of allowing people to kill themselves, torture, rape, etc. To do that, though, I really have to rethink that God is in control idea. And that's what a lot of these ideas that we're going to talk about tonight is all about. Well, I'm going to go to one of my favorite illustrations in the book. And, oh, good. Um, anyone who knows me will, will understand why I'm picking this one. But when you're talking about the difference between an open-ended life and a predetermined life, mm. um, and, and I've personally never liked the idea of a predetermined anything. It, it, it makes great sense in fantasy novels. Yeah, somebody's predetermined, but that that we've got this plan, because if it is predetermined, then, as you said, there's a lot of branches that can really suck and, and a lot of stuff <laughs> can really happen. That's bad. But you you give a great illustration when you're asking which is better. And you say, is life more like a vinyl record? Each groove cut in the songs pre-recorded, which would mean that every time you put that needle down, it sounds the same or an extemporaneous jazz session. These musicians improvise, exploring art, uncharted motives. And then you say, is life open-ended or predetermined? And the way we answer this um, makes a world of difference. And people know I love that because jazz is, is my favorite music. It's my love uh -huh. language, no matter what it is. And I've even begun working on an idea that, that Wesley was an improvisational theologian, not just eclectic, that he was improvisational. And I, I see the same thing when you're talking in the idea. I'm going to expand on the, the jazz musicians, but like a, a jazz combo has to work together in complete trust. Mm. And, and when I hear you talk about cooperating with God, and it is in that idea of God as a source of trust, mm. not that he's in fully in control, but that things are going to come out certain ways that God can redeem things that happen that he had mm -hmm. nothing to do with. Like, for example, you know, you use the examples of rape or abuse, torture. Mm -hmm. These things are not of God. We, we, we never could see those as God. There are some that would say it's predetermined and it's God showing, you know, we get into the theodicy words, like just things that just feel really bad in my mouth. Yeah. Um, but I think to an, an illustration that Herbie Hancock gives of Miles Davis, I'm going to bring in something totally outside theology, but good. But Herbie tells a story of performing with Miles Davis on stage and they're playing uh, a tune and Herbie plays a wrong note. Miles, he said, paused for like five seconds looked up in the air and went along with it and changed the tune right then. Cool. And Herbie says, Miles never saw it as a wrong note. He just saw it as something that happened. And that meant that the, that the song had to take a different route this time. Yeah. And then pull back in. And if anybody knows Miles Davis and his music, it's just, he was amazing. And he did change throughout his lifetime in terms of stuff. But I mean, that was, he trusted Herbie enough that he didn't even believe Herbie had made a mistake because he knew that they were all playing together and they had to rely on one another. And, and I think 
when we look at this, it's also in the church and our communities that it's not just our, us as individuals and even, as you said, down to the quantum level, but that, that when we're cooperating in community and that that, that, is, that is a way that we heal. We've seen it in our church that people's psyches and spirits have been healed through um, just an outpouring of love and of, mm. of, of reaching out to one another. And that, mm -hmm. I think, I think that's what I'm, that's what I get out of this illustration. Now I've expanded Good. it hugely here, but I think what you're saying is our life is not that needle laid down on it where it's right. predetermined, but it's more like that live performance by the jazz combo where yeah. that music can go almost anywhere, but can always be resolved back to um, the good. And I like that. I like the way you would, bring yeah. in the relational aspect there. That's, that's really nice. I, I, I would have probably put that in the book had I heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say something controversial. Um, if I haven't already, um, what you have just laid out in terms of the future not being predetermined in classical philosophy, that's called foreordination. And the Wesleyan tradition, John Wesley in particular, he was totally against it. Sometimes it's called predestination, but it's the idea that the future has already been decided and we don't have any freedom to change it at all. John Wesley, however, seemed to think that even though God didn't predetermine the future, didn't foreordain it, that somehow God could foreknow absolutely everything that will ever happen in the future. God has exhaustive foreknowledge to use the technical language. I reject that notion. So I'm different from John Wesley on this particular issue. And here's the way my thinking goes. If God already knows in advance everything that's going to happen, and if God can't make a mistake in God's knowledge, well, that seems to suggest that the future can't be changed at all. It's, there are no real live options. The future has already been settled. It's determined. It's fixed. But if the future is settled, determined, and fixed, it's hard to imagine how we have real free will to choose amongst options right now in the moment. So that's kind of the distinctive move for open theology is to say, Maybe we should think that God does know everything, but the future isn't yet something that can be known by anyone because it hasn't yet happened. So God can know everything that happened in the past, everything that's happening right now in this moment, everything that's possible for the future, but God can't know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen because the future just hasn't happened yet. So it's not yet knowable. That's the open and open and relational theology. I've got well, a I'll, question. I'll, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go well, ahead. I had a follow-up question on that. So uh, great, in, great. in your book, um, go into that a little bit more about how God worked within time, right? That, that he, he is not right. a God outside of time, that he, he is going through the time just as we are going through the time. And, you know, if you look into it, you see a lot of our uh, ideas of God existing outside of town, time is really uh, neoplatonic um, from the one and everything else. And, you know, we've adapted that into our theologies. Um, but, you know, I don't know if everyone listening, they have some kind of idea of what open theism is this, you know, but I don't know if they really understand it about this idea sure. that, you know, the future is open because, God doesn't know every free will choice we're going to make yet, you know, as, as Brandon was laying out. And uh, I think you sure. guys explained that pretty well, but here's a question based off that. Here's my follow-up question. So if God is defined by time, um, are we saying that God didn't create time and he's always been um, confined by time? Cause you know, you worded a little bit in your book where maybe, you say God has always been creating. God has always been creating forever. So I'm so almost, um, and if I might be going down a rabbit trail here, I don't know. But no, that's a like, good uh, question. Like creation is almost eternal as well. I don't yeah, know if I'm yeah. wrong in coming to that assumption, but I'm kind of there just reading through some of your work. So if you want to go into that little detail, I'll be yeah. interested yeah. in hearing it. That's a great question. 
Well, um, in the camp of open and relational theology, there are various ways to think about that. This. So let me begin there by saying what I'm going to propose to you is my favorite way. Uh, there are other ways within the camp that would disagree with me. Let me start with one that I don't like, okay, so that I'm, I'm not on board with this. There's some people who think that God was at one time totally timeless and then in creating a universe, God created timeful things. I think it's weird to say God created time because I don't think time's a thing, but God created creatures that are timeful, we might say, or timely. They have a time dimension. That's one way to go. I find that problematic because that means that God isn't essentially timeful. God's essentially timeless. I find more attractive the idea that God has always been engaging time because time is part of God's very being. And we can say this happened in the Trinity prior to the creation of the world, or we can say God has always been creating some world or another. And that's the, the option you're kind of feeling toward. And that's the one I prefer. So uh, those three options are on the ta table. I think the latter two are stronger than the first one, but um, all three can come under the open and relational umbrella, just so long as we say God currently is experiencing time like we are. And I'm going to channel Pastor Terry real quick um, because he was talking about this actually today. Um, because I have kind of an, an, an example from scripture to take us into how things can happen. So if we look at the story of Noah, God decides to destroy the world with the flood because man as, as the word would, you know, humanity is evil from their youth and prone to do bad works. So the flood happens and everything. And then in, in the covenant of not doing it again, later, God actually says it didn't work. Hmm. God says, the reason I will not destroy the world with a flood again is because humanity is bad from the start and prone to do evil acts from the beginning. And so like, so Terry and I were talking and he said, you know, he was kind of pulling this to the fact that if God knew the flood wasn't going to work, why would God do the flood? Mm, interesting. So from scripture, there's an example of God, not maybe not knowing how humanity would react once it was changed, but that Humanity was still prone, and even, even Noah and his family, who were righteous, were able to go off the rails because yeah. of, you know, the way things happen. So open theists will point to stories like that, or the story of King Hezekiah, who uh, the prophet comes to Hezekiah and says, put your house in order because the Lord says you're going to die. You will surely die, says the text. <laughs> and King Hezekiah says, well, maybe if I repent and change my ways, I won't die. And that's exactly what happens. So the Lord says you're going to die, and then he doesn't die. Same thing with Jonah. After he comes out of the whale, he goes to Nineveh and says, you're going to be destroyed. And the king of Nineveh says, well, maybe if we put on sackcloth and ashes, maybe we won't be destroyed. And the very last verses of Jonah say, God repents, which means God has a change of mind. God learns things in scripture. Um, so yeah, open theists have point to those kinds of biblical passages to support their view. Now, there are some passages in scripture that do kind of point or suggest that maybe God does know the future. I think the most difficult one for the open theist is probably when Jesus says, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times to Peter. Man, that sounds like, you know, how would Jesus know this? I mean, maybe he knows Peter really well, but how does he know the rooster is going to crow? I mean, it just seems like a, an instance in which the future has already been determined. Now, open theists have some ways to get around that by saying, well, that was a saying of the day or whatever. My own personal opinion, though, is to say, I'm not sure the entire Bible supports open and relational theology. I wish it did. But I do think the majority of the Bible supports open and relational theology. And when you think of a God who has covenants 
who has changes in those covenants because the people don't respond well. A God who says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, then I will do X. But if they don't, I'm going to do Y. Well, that sounds like the future hasn't yet been decided. Even God doesn't know what God's going to do. So I think there's lots of biblical support for open and relational theology, but I don't think every last verse supports it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Pastor. I was just going to ask you, Tom. You know that yeah. that was kind of where I was going a minute ago. I was, you know, you used the example of King Hezekiah and yeah. the, the if-then concept, and yeah, and I, and I go back to you know something you said a few minutes ago in relation to God not knowing the future or not knowing uh, what's going to happen based on our choices. But yeah. could it not be that he doesn't know which path w- will will we will follow, but he knows all possible paths? I believe you that. Know, you know, uh, so, I mean, we could still say that God does, in his knowledge, know the future, but it, it just depends on which future it will be. He knows the possibilities in the if-then idea. Yes, yep. But it, that's but my it view. depends upon our choice. It depends upon our will, our free will. Woos us in certain directions because you know His love empowers us and woos us and, and influences us to the, the 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 right path or 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 His will or His way. But the the possibilities are multiple, right? Yep. So it, it, it could be that He is He does know the future, but He also doesn't know which future it is. Right. So it doesn't know the actual future, but he knows all the potential futures. Right. It's right. like if I take my granddaughter to the store and I pick four pairs of shoes out for her and I say, take your, your pick, which one, which pair do you like? I know all the possible possibilities, four pairs, but I'm not sure which one she's going to choose. I might have a good idea because I know her pretty well, but I can't say I know with absolute certainty which she's going to pick. And so that's the same idea I think you're articulating, and I agree with it. And I think, too, in, in our humanness, in being obedient to the, uh, these opportunities, for instance, if one were, uh, you know, wrestling with a call or where they were headed, like they did interviewed at a church for a ministry position or interviewed for something else and had to make a determination between them, you know, if they're not obedient to what they sense that God is calling them to, does that break this linear line of God's ordinate involvement and plan? And I, I just think that God is bigger than those circumstances that, that we in our humanness will err, that there will be times in our human and broken states when we are not obedient or when we do not discern correctly but that God in his relational and connective um, dynamic of who he is, the, the promise of who he is, walks that journey and allows that journey, allows, I think that's the right word, but <laughs> certainly is in the midst of that. And so then it's not, I think, it, I think it's one of the most challenging things is that it's not a linear, you know, my life is very linear. It's a starting yeah. point, ending point, and a journey in between. But that the ordinance of God, the, the richness of God's relationship with us is one that walks through that journey, knowing that there are twisted turns. And so when we think about righteousness and wisdom and these rich, you know, the legacies of what we're called to do, particularly in Old Testament, and to really chase after these things and seek that, that all seems to point back to me to knowing God more, knowing God in his fullness and, and, and getting deeper in that journey. And I think that that is where this God of connectedness and open relational theology really applies in my yeah, opinion. That's nice. I like that. You know, I live up here in Idaho and uh, most people know about the famous trek that Lewis and Clark and their crew took across the United States trying to find uh, the other side. <laughs> uh, when they got into one section of Idaho, they went down this river that we call the river of no return and uh, it was the wrong move. They had to get out of the river and find a different way. Now, imagine if you thought there was only one way to get mm-hmm. from Missouri to the Pacific. And 
once Lewis and Clark went down that river the wrong way, the whole thing was over. What if you thought that? What if you thought, well, man, you're off the track. You know, you might as well just sit down and die because there's nothing that can we can do now. No, I think what happens is when we get off the track, we get out, we try to find the good track to go from where we are to hit to the good life, salvation, whatever you want to call it. And um, so instead of thinking God's will is one, you know, railroad track into the future that if you leave the track, you're doomed. Think of life as a bridging of arrows and possibilities and avenues. And sometimes we sin. God doesn't want that, but God takes us and continues to redeem us and works us toward the good life, the salvation God offers. It's the, uh, the country song, God Bless the Broken Roads. <laughs> I don't know it, but that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's this it's this idea that, you know, there was a road and it got it was broken for whatever reason. Yeah. It still leads us in that road and blesses and uses and mends and restores. I mean, and I think about, you know, you talk, you talk, you know, you brought up the illustration of Peter um, and Jesus, you know, knew he knew that was going to happen. Well, what if Peter's story ended that night by the fire as he yeah. denied Christ, you know? But he, but his story didn't end, right? And and I and I love the the image of Jesus meeting him there on the shoreline and restoring him, and and knowing how his road was mended and his story continued, and see what what God did in that. Yeah, you brought in a country song. Let me bring in a song from an old band called Chicago. They had a song called "If She Would Have Been Faithful." The whole <laughs> idea is that if my former girlfriend would have been faithful to me. I would have missed out on you. Right. Now, <laughs> the idea, I think, works so long as you don't think it was God just kind of manipulating everything so that the previous right. girlfriend was unfaithful. Then that makes God the author of sin, right? Like that right. doesn't make any sense. And some of our Calvinist brothers and sisters have to swallow hard and accept that if that's the way they think. But we can say God takes the crap that happens, the unfaithfulness, whether we do it or somebody else does, and tries to squeeze something good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. Right. And I think that's a redemptive vision. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to, because we've been talking kind of theoretically a lot and okay. using a lot of big language, I'm going to, I'm going to tie in some pop culture stuff here real quick. I like <laughs> hey, to we've do been that. doing that too. Dwayne and I are yeah. bringing in pop culture. I know. Yeah. I remember Chicago. So love them. <laughs> porn section, especially yeah, 80s were a little weird with them. But um, so if anybody's familiar with the Marvel universe, let's let's go to Marvel. Um, and if, you, if you've seen Loki, you're seeing a picture of what of the two different ideas we're talking about here. So the entire thing of Loki at the throughout the series is somebody trying to control those time streams. And when branches happen, they have to destroy that branch or chaos may ensue mm. now. So, you know, one of these passes, Loki who wants it, even though he's a, a God of mischief, as he keeps telling us, he wants it to remain in that control where there is somebody directing all that, where Sylvie breaks that entire paradigm. And then we get the multiverse. Now, obviously that was a trope designed to expand the movies so that Marvel can make even more money, <laughs> but we get the what if series. Um, and I think that's a good picture of what we're talking mm, about, that there are yeah. all these other possibilities. And what if this one little change happens? What if somebody makes a different decision? There are all these different things that happen. And so, and even in Dr. Who, there's this idea that, that although in Dr. Who, there's a, there's a law that there are certain points in the past and the future that are set. So Dr. Who breaks down in the open area a little bit, mm. but that's how Dr. Who explains why Dr. Who can't go back and stop World War II, because that point had to be fixed. If it's changed, then, then the universe will be destroyed. Um, well, I got, Mar I got a little more open. So I've got a movie for you. This is kind of an obscure one, but I highly recommend it. It stars Matt Damon earlier in his life. It's called the adjustment bureau. Oh, yeah. If you haven't seen that movie, check it out. It kind of has this idea of all these options and time sort of going along and depending on what people choose, more options come up. So, well, anyway. I can, I can say personally, and I won't share 
for the sake of time, I won't share it in this panel, but I've shared with shared it with some that my life trajectory changed based on the choice of a laundry detergent brand. Interesting. Huh. And wow. my my whole life path changed yep. based on the, the the brand of laundry detergent I chose at one one moment in a load of laundry. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> yep. And this is uh, interesting that we in our humanness too are so typically opposed that we have a set vision, a plan that we make in that dynamic to be at a location for our employment or to invest into work for a series. And there are times I think where God certainly has other opportunities that we may, we may miss or we may not see. And sometimes it takes troubling the waters or, you know, something to awaken us to those opportunities um, around yeah, us. I agree with you. Yeah. And like I think sometimes we, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Tom. I just said that God stirs that in us somehow. Yeah. Sometimes we forget that we're not the only free agents on the planet, you know, <laughs> like we can make well-intentioned plans to make certain choices, but other people have choices too. Sometimes our choices help us out. Sometimes they really hurt us. They really harm us. And um, I think God has to take into account their choices, let alone all the things that are going on at the, you know, micro level and the environment and civilization and animals and birds and insects. I mean, there's lots of stuff going on. I think an omnipresent God is aware and working with all of it. Uh, but sometimes at least I forget there are other factors at play. And I think that I'm the only one choosing in the world. <laughs> hey, Tom, can I ask you a question? Can I circle back to something you, you mentioned sure. earlier? And it's just kind of ringing through my brain. I'm trying to get my brain yeah. around it. You said, and correct me if I'm wrong, you said that you don't believe that God heals um, without the without the participation of or the how did you say it you don't I believe said god it. never heals single-handedly either there's cooperation by agents or cells or whatever that could cooperate or the inanimate conditions are conducive for the kind of healing so you know i don't think rocks for instance have free will or um, that sort of thing so yeah i don't so, think it's ever god alone in that okay so are you saying that god So as God is healing someone in, in a supernatural way, a, a miraculous healing, are you saying that the creation that he is healing is cooperating with God's will? I am. Yeah. Okay. And we sometimes call things, I don't like to use the word supernatural, but let's just use it here for a second. We sometimes think of things as supernatural. I think we use that word because we don't understand why it happened. We don't have a good explanation for it. It defies laws of nature. Or at least laws that we're aware of. You know, yeah, right, right. I'm a philosopher, and there's a big debate on whether or not there are any laws of nature and all kinds of things. Anyway, so we oftentimes put that word supernatural on something that's unexpected, dramatic. We didn't see that coming. Uh, beyond, blows our mind. But that doesn't necessarily have to mean that God alone made it happen because we're not aware of what's going on in the world. I mean, there's lots of things going on that our mind can't get our heads around. So my proposal is to say that even in those, quote, supernatural moments, there's some kind of creaturely contribution that makes the miracle or healing happen. Along with God, obviously, but. Uh, and I, I think you, you when you touch on it, when you, when you talked about an omnipresent God, you're talking about at all levels. I mean, we, we kind of think right. of, of God watching every creature, but you, you mentioned quantum earlier. So, I mean, when we go to science, we think of God omnipresent in the universe at all these levels at, at the quantum, you know, at, at the, whatever ends up being the smallest particle, even if we get to that, you know, we may not understand what, is the smallest yet you know yep we we know that that knowledge is always expanding our, our understanding of how this works and we even know that physics has to change sometimes 
because of of things we recognize. I mean, I, yep. I read something the other day where black holes, they're, they're beginning to rethink the way those work. So, yeah. So um, I'm just. Yeah. And not just. I, I think it's, it's just God is in all. And right. so we, we, we're. And I think that's one of the key features of of the open and relational is that yes. God is present um, present to all creation it's, at it's, all levels yeah i mean from the you know, simple to the complex yeah, yeah. and i, I and i want to add something here too that this might make some people uncomfortable but i'll say it anyway um this means god's present to muslims jews atheists agnostics no matter who you are god is present and active in your life sure. now i think that some of us cooperate what better with god than others and so I'm not saying just because God's active everywhere that everything that happens is what God wants. I definitely don't think that. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we Christians have God and those Muslims or those Hindus, they're right. totally outside of God. No, God's present everywhere at right. all times. And to the extent that any Hindu or Muslim responds well to God in that moment, they're following God's will in that moment. We can rejoice in that. We can say that without having to say, well, Islam is, uh, is the same value as Christianity because we think Christianity is, has something better. We don't have to dismiss everybody, but we also don't have to say everybody is equal. And I think that's a really good way to live in the world in which we live. It makes sense, I think, of the diversity of religious traditions and the good that our Muslim or atheist friends do in the world. Well, and I mean, it sounds controversial, but I don't think if we read Wesley widely, not as most of us do, for Wesley. I, I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, no. that would be, I think Wesley Being himself, great. when we look at the way Wesley dealt with, with, uh, with Jewish religion, with, with those who hadn't even heard of God, prevenient grace was his answer to right. what he saw in his experience that, that God is working. And yep. I think I think the highlight here is that that God is working everywhere. I mean, if we either believe that God is is that big, I mean, I have to, to use that kind of language, but that God is is everywhere, and that that starts scaring people when you say it certain ways, especially when we say that others can respond. But I think the idea here is God is working in this world. Um, yep. We believe God works in this world. Jesus told us God worked in this world. He showed us God working in this world. Uh, said when One he ascended to... that the Spirit would come. You know, so we. Yeah. You know this. I think that's solid Wesleyan thought. Me that, too. That God works in the world. One in, way or, to think in... of my ideas and my theology is to say I take Wesley's view of prevenient grace that God is present to all people, no matter their background, religion, culture, whatever. And I extend that to all creation and everything whatsoever. Prevenient grace is cosmic, not just anthropocentric. It's for the whole world, not just for humans. Right. And um, I think that's a powerful way to think that helps us make sense of all kinds of scientific conundrums, cultural conundrums. Um, anyway, I, I find it helpful. I got a, I got a question or go for it. Off that, um, this isn't from this book so it's from a long time ago so uh okay. it's actually from another writer that i read uh kenneth collins yeah i know uh, ken yeah yeah western theology uh holy love and the grip of grace yes and um he mentioned you know of uh, the problem of of you removing the word holy in this holy love but you know what we're talking about you know is the reason why you want to remove it and mm. i don't know if you want to elaborate on that because i think yeah. it's excellent Ken and I have a disagreement. He likes to put the word holy in front of the word love to distinguish between, I guess, something like a godly love versus an ungodly love or something like that. And I think that if we define love properly, all love is holy. So you don't need to add something to the front. It's kind of like saying a, a male bachelor. Well, bachelors are male, so you don't have to say a male bachelor. Holy love is like saying uh, a round circle. Well, circles are round. You don't have to add the round there. So I prefer to have a good definition of love, which I say involves us acting intentionally in response to God and others, 
to promote overall well-being. And then if we want to add any words in front of love, we can might talk about certain types of love, like maybe uh, friendship love or erotic love or uh, compassionate love. Um, all of those loves fit the definition, but they're just kind of types. Um, so that's a difference that Ken and I have. And, you know, I like to rub it in and say, you know, holy love is a phrase isn't in the Bible. And, and I'll say John Wesley used it very few times and he'll come back with his answers. It's, it's a good natured argument. I don't think it's a huge deal, but it's right. a matter of semantics and trying to think about what language is going to communicate best. Yeah, I like it because the idea we think of holy love, you think of, you know, that God is so far beyond us that this holiness is there. But, you know, when you just look at God, it's love and, and what Jesus lived out, God coming to us when we were dirty, when we were sinners, when we were desperate, when we were suffering, that, you know, we didn't have to get to this certain point yeah. uh, where a holy God will love us. He loves us. That's all yeah, it is. He just yeah. loves us. And I love that. Yeah, I, I do too. Yeah, that word holiness can be used to place distance between this pristine, perfect God and us ugly, horrible. And I don't think that's a good way to look at so it. What, I think what, to, to, big, to, big, to piggyback off of that, would you say yeah. that we have a tendency to water down the term of love? Water, down water it down or just love? misunderstand it? I mean, it's a tough word. Um, I'd love to say, well, if you just go to the Bible, you'll get the right definition. But the biblical writers themselves have different understandings of the word, including the word agape. You know, we know this verse, for God so loved the world, the mm. word agape is there. So it sounds like, yeah, God loved the world. We ought to love the world. And there's another passage in scripture in which Paul is criticizing someone named Demas because Demas loved the world. And that's a negative thing but the word used is agape. So the words in scripture, the Greek don't have one single meaning. There's lots of confusion over this. I have to actually have written a book with the boring title, Defining Love, <laughs> in which I get into some of this. And um, so, cause this is something I think really matters. So yeah, we have to be careful. What do we mean when we use the L word? I think the Bible can help us, but I'm, I have to admit, there isn't just one definition of love in the Bible. So we have to work at what kind of definition is going to make the most sense of the Bible and our everyday life and how we live, et cetera, and then account for those differences. And one of the ways to do that is to say that Hellenism, Greek thinking, was even present, especially in the Apostle Paul, even in Scripture. So like in Hebraic thinking, the word love is almost always a verb. But in the Apostle Paul, the love turns into a noun, which is a very static kind of notion. And it's also uh, more aligned with the idea of desire rather than well-being. But now I'm getting into the weeds and you probably don't care about all this stuff. But that's some of the issues I think we have to take into account. Well, we've, uh, we've actually hit our hour. So um, We've all, I hope we've all enjoyed this a lot. I know I have. Um, and this I has been too. a real treat to have Tom with us tonight. Um, we get to get to have our minds expanded a little. We get to to talk and ask questions. It's it's always great to be able to to ask the author of something that you have questions when you're reading those questions um, because you can you you get to understand better. Sometimes I wish we could go back and ask Paul what he meant exactly on some things. <laughs> it, yeah. it might might help a lot with some discord at times. But um, I, I hope everyone enjoyed this tonight. Uh, we are going to ask Tom to pray for us uh, before we say bye to the live stream. Um, I will ask the panel to hang on for just a minute uh, afterwards. But um, we, we do appreciate everybody who joined us live, and I'm sure, I know there are people going to be watching this uh, in what I call the reruns of it, but uh, I hope it's blessed you. I hope it's helped you to understand some stuff, and obviously, if you have questions um, and you know us, come to us. Um, you can look up Tom on social media, on the web, and see the various uh, books and other things he's done. Um, and uh, follow him on those and get to see other uh, great panels like this and, and other podcasts and such that he, he appears on. Um, and uh, 
you know, just interact with, uh, with, with these ideas in other ways. So Tom, could you, could you pray for all of us tonight, please, sir? Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Okay. God, we are grateful for your relentless, unending love, a love that cares about us in our particularity, but also cares about absolutely everything and everyone. God, we commit ourselves to imitating you by living a life of love, by following Jesus, the greatest lover ever. We commit that tonight again as followers of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us this week on the Parson Brown Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this engaging conversation with Dr. Tom Ord. For more information, please look in the show notes for links to both Tom's books, Tom's social media, and for another list of those on the panel. We thank you so much for joining us and enjoy your week.